0: Hey, when you think about engaging the culture, different cultures, you don't think of Scotland as being a place where you've got natives that you have to go and uh, share the gospel with. Uh, But God moved in incredible ways in Scotland, and it's certainly a mission field today, isn't it? I I say that with the realization that my family is Scottish. They uh, immigrated, uh, my grandparents did, and a lot of families still in in Glasgow. But when I think of going to a place where you really have to work hard at bridging the culture... um, I've been to 26 different countries, which has really been a blessing. But the one where I thought it's going to be the biggest challenge was when we were in the Masai Mara in the southern part of Kenya and went to a Masai village. And the ladies, the ladies are the ones that work, you know, in those, those kind of cultures. They make these mud-dung houses. And obviously they mix mud and dung together because they stick together really well and um, smell. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, they're the, the ladies do all that work. They go out in the woods and have babies and come back and keep working on the house. And the guys, of course, are sitting around talking and uh, watching the cattle um, and so those kind of things. And so we're in the, I went to this Maasai village and I'm talking to the Maasai warriors. Those are those, those real tall guys that jump, you know. They jump like ten feet up in the air. It's really great with a basketball team. But um, I thought, here we are in the middle of nowhere. And these Maasai warriors all dressed up, they got the spears and everything. And, um, and I'm talking to this one guy, and I look down, and he had a cell phone. <laughs> I was so disappointed, that just destroyed everything. That this guy actually, and it worked. It worked. And um, so no matter where you go. And, and the reason I say that is because American culture... Technology, Chinese technology is is all over the world our world is collapsing what's it going to be like in 5 years or 10 years nobody could have predicted the kind of culture the kind of society that we have now if you read futurists like I used to do all the time because my, my field is really culture society from a biblical perspective they used to make all these predictions they're not doing that anymore because they don't know they have no idea. And in many ways, they're frightened about what the future holds. Because usually, they could have predicted certain things. Not anymore. Not anymore. In the Bible, I hope you have one. What's the first verse of the Bible? Go ahead and pick it up. Hold it. It's precious, precious. Verse 1 says what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible does not try to prove God's existence. Bible assumes God's existence and moves on from there. But soon after God created the heavens and the earth, mankind sinned and fell. And God, this is in chapter 3, God struck humanity and the world with what? The earth with what? A curse. A curse. We live in a world that finds things constantly rotting and rusting and decaying and dying this is not the land of the living this is the land of the dying right? it is. and it's all because of the curse you see the outworking of the curse throughout the Old Testament. sin, death, destruction, hatred, vengeance, murder, rape and then you get to the very last book Of the Old Testament. Go ahead and turn there. Book of Malachi. Last book of the Old Testament. Book that was written while Nehemiah was governor. Look at the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament. Did you find it? Look at the last chapter, the last verse of the last book of the Old Testament. Look at the last word. What's the word? It's curse. In fact, if you have a Hebrew Bible with you, anybody, you'll find that most of the scribes went up and took another verse from earlier in the chapter and repeated it after this verse so that the prophets would not end with the word curse. The curse is still alive. And as we move into the New Testament, The outworking of the curse still. But God's plan, of course, was to take the curse away. And in Galatians chapter 3, we get a better perspective on who this man Jesus Christ really was. Because there we read that he became a curse for us. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. He became a curse for us, Paul writes. And then we go to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And you go to the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. Revelation 22. All things restored now. Verse 1 says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing down from the throne of God of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. Now here's the key, verse 3. No longer will there be, what? Any curse. It's God. The word of God opens with humanity in perfect fellowship with God. The word of God ends with humanity in perfect fellowship with God as he intended from the beginning. And in between is the story of man falling into sin, the curse coming upon us, God himself taking the initiative to take the curse away and bringing us back into fellowship with him. The reason I bring this up is that too many people think that the Bible is a wonderful book of God's greatest thoughts, God's commands that we must follow a book that is filled with scientific history. But it is God's love letter to us, a pattern of God's history that gives us hope in a world of despair. We know who wins in the end. And just like watching a game that you taped and you know who wins in the end and your team won, you don't worry when your team gets behind because you know who wins in the end. We have hope, and it shows in the way that we live. That's why the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3:15 says, "Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within you, to everyone who asks. That implies, number one, that you're living in such a way that people see hope in you, and number two, that you are prepared and equipped to give an answer, to give an answer. There is no greater question that a non-Christian can ask you than what is it that you believe that makes you like this? And you have the opportunity to share. That's the key. My challenge for us is to do just that. And I want to talk to us for a moment about this topic. To engage the culture with the heart and the mind of Christ. For too long we have tried... I think, to focus on being salt and light in the church. But God has called us to be salt and light in the world. In a world that desperately needs hope. In fact, that's what we strive to do at Cedarville University. Regardless of what your major is, your job is to go and make disciples. We have over 3,000 students... A third of them in the sciences. They go into engineering. They go into education. They go into nursing. They go into med school. You just name it. Starting a school of pharmacy. But they know that job one is going and making disciples, because you know that's where the real work is done, isn't it? We have a lot to go into ministry, professional ministry, but everybody needs to be equipped. That's why every student, regardless of their major, will minor in Bible. We're one of the few schools in the nation that do that. And we have a worldview emphasis. We want them to know the Bible and how to understand the Bible, how to interpret the Bible, and how to apply the Bible to themselves and the world. It's really missing today, isn't it? We want them to be able to do that. All right. Point number one. What are the elements of contemporary culture? If this church and you as an individual are going to make an impact, you must know not only how to exegete the word of God, but how to exegete the world of God as well. Right? You need to understand the world. And I'll show you some passages where this compels us to look at the world around us, to understand it so that we can be, I think, more effective in how we share. Case in point. I, I get to speak a lot all over the place. I was down in San Antonio speaking at a, a program. And it's, it's, a, it's a leadership program for Christian students. It just so happens that 30 Muslims came from the Middle East and wanted to attend this program. Now, you had 250 students and 30 of them were Muslims from Palestine, actually. And so the leader came and said, you know what, we need to be a little careful Because number one, they're Muslims, and number two, when they hear the word Christian, they don't think followers of Christ. They think a political movement. So I had to go through my notes and everything and change the word Christian to followers of Christ. That's what Christian means, doesn't it? But I had to be sensitive to whom I was speaking. I had to be aware that there might be something I say Something that I did that would distract them from the truth I was trying to communicate. And we're going to see the Apostle Paul doing that. In Acts chapter 13, when he is preaching to the Jews and to the God-fearing Gentiles, he opens up the word of God and says, let me show you what God has been doing. And he compellingly shares with them God's work all the way through the person of Jesus Christ. When he gets to Athens, and we'll talk about this at the end of the message, when he gets to Athens, he can't do that. They don't know what the Bible is in Athens. He recognizes his audience and he crafts his message. He doesn't water down the gospel, but he crafts his message so, for them so they can hear. When we think of engaging our culture for Christ, too often we have kept ourselves in such a Christian bubble. We don't know what they think or, or what they're doing. What are they thinking? And to realize that in today's culture, that movies and television shows are the parables of the day. And popular music is genuinely the poetry of the day. What are they saying and why? Many young people think that entertainment is a right. I have the right to listen to anything I want to. Well, yeah, maybe. But as a Christian, you set aside that right and you look at it differently through the eyes of Christ need is to be discerning every song every movie every television program every commercial every book is telling you how to live it's telling you what to believe it's telling you what to do so when i talk about engaging the culture there are many aspects of culture we could talk about we could talk about political culture corporate culture academic culture but i want to focus on what we call popular culture which is not really a culture and i'll explain that in a second all right you might find this interesting if not, you can tell me later. What are the major influences in an adolescent's life? Now, let's, let's look at it from three different uh, eras. 1960s, 1980s, and today. What do you think was the number one influence back in the 1960s? Family. That is, what influenced them in the way they dressed, the way they talked, the values that they had? Their family was the number one. Number two was school. You had friends at school. You had a a culture at school to be a part of. Number three were their friends. Number four was church. Church, even in the 60s, was a crucial element. Some of you who grew up in the 60s, you remember. Church was part of what you did for the most part. And then there were many other elements that really influenced an adolescent and how they lived. In the 1980s, friends became the number one. In fact, when these... Young adolescents got older into the 90s. They didn't know what to do with themselves, so they made a sitcom called Friends so they could hang out at the coffee shop and never seemed to have a job. (laughs) Family was number two. Media, something new has entered in. By the media, mainly in the 80s, we're talking about the television and music, particularly. Some movies. Fourthly, school Fifthly, was church. Today, what do you think is number one? Yeah, almost without exception, everybody recognizes the media and technology in general. We've gone far beyond just movies and music and television shows, haven't we? Many relationships of young people are tech-based relationships. Many young people talk more by text messaging than they do face-to-face. And some of them are really good. They don't have to look. The text message. But the media is so, so influential. Friends are second, and sometimes those two go together. Family is third, fourth is school, and fifth is other. You can get this information from the Johnson Institute and some other other places. But isn't it interesting? What has fallen off the chart here? Yeah, the church. And what is interesting is that this generation of young people is by far the most spiritual than any generation probably in the last 50 years because they're separating church from spirituality they are getting their spiritual nourishment such as it is from other places other than church a lot of it online a lot of it in books a lot of it in the back of magazines we live in interesting days How are you going to minister? How is this church going to minister? What has God called us to do and to be? Now, a lot of those of you a little bit older say, I don't want to worry about this. I don't want to get involved. At least you can pray and be a part of it that way. But Cedarville, we've actually put out a magazine several times a year to help Christians know what's going on. Our most recent Torch edition is called Making Sense of Power Politics and the Presidency. Because this is an election year. Our next one coming out in the fall is on postmodernism and the emerging church. And uh, we get outstanding writers, with the exception of one, to, to come in. I write it here too. But uh, to come in, help us. Because our goal is to help educate Christians think deeply and broadly about the world around us. And we've also put together a curriculum called Review. It's won a lot of awards. And it is a DVD curriculum on web based, and, and it's designed to help teenagers engage the entertainment culture. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful program. We filmed it in in Seattle and in New York City and different places. It's actually on national television in Romania. It's pretty cool. But uh, our goal is not only to educate the students that are there, but the Christian body more broadly. Well, let, let me give you this picture here. This might help you think about who we are. When you look at the cultural landscape, most of us are influenced by local culture and elite culture. That is, the local culture being the place where you grew up, the high school that you lived, you know, you had the cool kids, you had the geeks, you had the different kinds of of kids in your school. You had the different festivals in your local area. You had the families that had political and social power in your area. And all of that influenced who you became. Then we have what's called elite culture. And elite culture is like Bach and, and Beethoven and the Beatles, you know, that which has really uh, captured and defined us as a, as a Western culture over the years. And then in the middle you have something that we call popular culture, which is not really a culture. It's really a question of commodities. It's defined by what is the most popular And you choose that. Like the number one movie is the Batman movie. What makes it number one? Because more people have gone to see it and paid more money. That's what makes it number one. The number one CD is the the CD that makes the most money. Money becomes the catch-all that makes something number one. It captures the attention, the money, and so on. Therefore, it is popular. And what's interesting is when you add these together, you get what really influences young people and influences us as well. Because our popular culture in America is also the popular culture in Nairobi. Because what's hot here is hot there. It's one of our greatest industries, one of our greatest exports. Now, and popular culture seems to dominate it more than anything else. Now, saying that, What's the influence of popular culture in our world today? When I was in Washington, D.C., I was talking to Bill Wicherman, who was the policy advisor to Bill Frist, Senator Frist. And he said this. He said, Will and Grace, WWE, SmackDown, Eminem, and Madonna have more to do with the direction of our culture than all of Congress. You believe that's true? Unfortunately, yeah. And even in walking in the halls of Congress, they recognize that. In fact, Phyllis Tickle, who was the uh, editor... Actually, the religion editor at Publishers Weekly has written an interesting book called God Talk in America. She says, more theology is conveyed in and probably retained from one hour of popular television than from all the sermons that are delivered on any given weekend in America, synagogues, churches, and mosques. Powerful statements about our culture. And this is the culture, guys, that we are called to minister to, to be salt and light to. So, let me go on to this third point, which I think is an important one. And the point is this, is that Christians have basically taken three approaches to engaging the culture around us. The first is that we are offended so that we withdraw. We are so overwhelmed by what we see, the sin that's around us, that we just want to pull away heard a lady once say that she was proud they just built a home they lived in it I say just built it. three and a half years and she told us as we entered in, she said, do you know a non-christian has never been in this home and she was proud of that and my thought goes back to the first century when Christians were known they were known for being philazenia which means love of strangers sometimes that's translated in the New Testament as hospitality it doesn't do justice to the word but if you were in a, a strange city and you didn't know what to, where to stay, the word was, go find a Christian. They'll let anybody stay with them. They'll let anybody stay with them. They had a great ministry. But we have a tendency sometimes to be so offended by what we see and what we hear that we withdraw. Come out from among them and be ye separate, right? Well, that's a misuse of the passage. But for a lot of people, that's their mission. And there's a lot to be offended by. Stephen King, brilliant man, well-known writer, says this. The beauty of religious mania is that it has the power to explain everything. Once God or Satan is accepted as the first cause of everything which happens in the mortal world, nothing is left to chance. Logic can be happily tossed out the window. And his point is, if you believe in God, you've already foreclosed your mind, so you're just not thinking. Christians are so anti-intellectual. And I know a lot of people say, I love Stephen King. I hate, I hate Christians too. I don't believe in God either. And But this is a silly statement from a very smart man. Or take this from well-known theologian, Brian Warner, also known as Marilyn Manson, who said, Dear God, if you were alive, you know we'd kill you. Of course, he's from Florida and Ohio and graduated from a Christian school. Or from Medivet or Pearl Jam, I would thank God, but I don't believe in it. Or this from Bjork, I've got my own religion. If I get into trouble, there's no God or Allah to sort me out. I have to do it myself. Or this very interesting quote from Bill Maher, yes, we are a nation that is unenlightened because of religion. I do believe that. I think that religion stops people from thinking. I think it justifies crazies. I think flying planes into a building was a faith-based initiative. I think religion is a neurological disorder. And a lot of our young Christians agree with him. They think that faith makes them less than other people. They don't know that the the Christian worldview was the soil of the greatest intellectual development in the history of mankind. From science to philosophy, you name it. My perspective of what we want to do at Cedarville and what we're doing is for our students to be so excited about the world not to be a part of it but to engage it you know when um, when Goliath was there just, just frightening and terrifying everybody and when David came out to challenge him Goliath you know listened to David and boy he took off after David and you know he got all this armor on this spear and everything he takes off after David what did David do? You know, no armor. Little David had five stones. What did he do? He started running toward Goliath. He's got that thing going. You know, you think he'd at least back up a little bit, but no. That's what we want our young people to do. They're not afraid of anything because they know the truth. They know the God of the truth, and that motivates them to take on any challenge for the glory of God because they know who went in the end. In a world that is desperate in despair, the hope of God can transform it. There is so much in our world today, individuals, that many times cause us to be so offended. We don't want to have anything to do with them. But guess what? These are the very people that God wants us to pray for and to engage I have a list of celebrities that I pray for to come to Christ every single day. How about you? My dream is that when I show celebrities on the screen, that Christian kids don't go, yeah, but rather they weep because they don't know the gift of God. That they will see these idols through the eyes of Christ and have their heart broken as well. And I promised the Lord years ago that when I prayed for these celebrities that I would pray creatively, not, oh God, save them. But Lord, let." uh, like this morning I prayed for my list. I prayed, let them see a real Christian today. Let, Let a real Christian come into their life and let them do or say something that makes them think, what is it they believe? What is it about them? And it makes me look at, I have a long list uh, and if somebody really irritates me, I feel like this is God's way of saying to me, you need to pray for him every day Brown." I was like, okay, and I do that. But I become like an antenna for these individuals because I begin to look for evidence that my prayers are working. Some of them have come to Christ. It's amazing. By the way, God's doing incredible things in Hollywood now. You know, I can't, don't have time right now, but God is doing some incredible things, incredible things in the lives of so many people. So many people. All right. Tolkien reminds us in the very first book of the Lord of the Rings when the hobbits were saying, you know, we're safe in the shire. Why should we worry about all the evil over there? We can just stay here. And he puts in the mouth of one of the elves this statement. He said, the wide world is all about you. You can fence yourselves in, but you cannot ever fence it out. The true? Parents, we try to protect our kids so long and sometimes they don't have the ability to engage at all. When I was a um, youth pastor in Texas, I had, fin- I had a degree in mathematics from down in Florida. I went to Dallas Seminary after that for seven years of tribulation and got my PhD there. And, um, but while I was there, I was invited to be a youth pastor at a church. And they had three youth, three youth. I can do that. And so after three months, we'd grown to two, which was the wrong way to go. But it took me a while, and I got my feet to, under me and everything. And within a year, we had about 60 kids that we'd led to Christ. It was a, really a great. It was a small town, and so it was really a lot of the youth in that town had come to Christ. And we were discipling them, and so it was pretty cool. But one thing I noticed was that these kids, for the most part had never been to church before, nor had their family been to church before. And what was really driving the choices they were making about dating and everything else was their, their entertainment choices, particularly their music. And so I did something that I, I didn't put a whole, well, I did put a whole lot of thought in. I, I probably should have put more, but it went really great. I said, okay, kids, this is what I want you to do. I want you to bring in your favorite song from the most influential group in your life we're going to write the words on an overhead, didn't have PowerPoint then, write the words on an overhead, and we're going to listen to the song here on Wednesday night in church, and we're going to talk about it. What is the song telling us to believe? What's it telling us to do? What's the worldview here? And, so, and we did that all summer long. Had huge crowds. And you know what? Some of those songs sound so different in church than they do when they were plugged into their man. right? Some of them were fine songs, they were good, but a lot of them weren't. It was amazing what happened to that youth group. Suddenly they realized that you can't have Christ as Lord of all here and not Lord of all here. That he's Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Transform that group. Interestingly, they still meet. Now they're in their 30s. I mean, they're married and everything, but uh, but they, they still meet. And they're involved in so many missions and so many things. It's, it's amazing how that one thing transformed them because they began to look at the world around them differently. In fact, I was in, I was in the Dallas area, and a girl came up to me, a lady came up to me, and she grabbed my hand, and she'd been a part of that youth group. And she said, You ruined my music listening. I can't listen to a song now without thinking, What is this song telling me to do? What's it telling me to do? What's, it, what's the worldview here? How does this match up with truth? And then she smiled and said, It's the best gift I ever received. The gift of discernment. The Apostle Paul tells us in First Thessalonians 5.21 to test everything. Test everything. Therefore, they need to have the raw material to test and then to be able to actually do that. Now, I don't know if... David's had this group here for worship. They're from Bakersfield. They've been around about 16 years now. Corn for many years, the top heavy metal group anywhere. What's interesting is that Brian Welch, head Welch, came to Christ about two and a half years ago. He'd been strung out on meth for like twelve years. Fascinating story. In fact, his book, Save Me From Myself, is an incredible read to look at the inside of a, of a group like, like this. But, you know, you're praying for a guy, you love bang, you get saved. And now he is out speaking for Christ. I mean, he was discipled well. He's out speaking. He uh, opened up an orphanage in uh, India. I mean, the guy is doing incredible things for God. Amazing. So who are you praying for? I know you're praying for friends and family, but think big. Think of gatekeepers. Change the culture. Second approach is to be delighted by culture so that we assimilate. Become just like it. I look for the world, I found in the church, I look for the church, and I found it in the world. Again, I'm not sure if you've had this group here. Outcast, Andre and Antoine, very sharp guys from Atlanta. If you like this kind of hip-hop music, they are really, really good. On their on their speaker box album, they got a song called Church. Man, like you ever wondered why? Why are we here? What the meaning to all this? And the song is filled with hallelujahs and some really interesting lyrics basically saying to kids hey you want to find out what life is all about go to church and you're thinking whoa but the next song is a song called the way you move and i can't even put the words up here and so you're a kid and you're thinking oh church and god and all this sex i guess it guess it goes together there's an assimilation of of spiritual and morality immorality there that's just hard to understand And you know what? It's not just them, it's us as well. We have a tendency to use worldly and secular standards to measure our own effectiveness. Whether it be how many people come to church, or how many CDs, or how many books, or, you know, I don't think God really cares about those things. God's looking for men and women whose hearts are faithful. Bigger is not better, better is better. And one person committed to a cause is far more effective than a thousand who are only interested. And that's why I do what I do for those young men and young women to have a heart to go out and make a difference, to really believe that the God of the universe can change hearts. All right, which leads me to the third and last, and the correct one because it's third and last. And that is the biblical perspective to be distressed by culture so that we engage. Let me, let me explain what I mean. I want to use the example of the Apostle Paul here as we wrap up. The, the key passage, if you turn there, I think it's really important. This passage actually transformed everything that I did. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. The Apostle writes this, beginning in verse 19. He, he's talked about how, how free he is in Christ in the first 18 verses. I'm free, I'm free, praise God, I'm free. Jesus Christ said in John chapter 8, if you know me, if you know my truth, the truth will do what? Make you free, free. We are free in Christ. And notice in verse 19, he says, though I am free and belong to no man, I do what? What does it say? I make myself a slave to everyone. In the passage here, the Apostle Paul is using the word, not diakonos, servant, that we use for deacon, but the word doulos, the the bond slave, the worst of the worst slaves. I make myself a slave. To whom? For what purpose? To win as many... It's possible. Can I just ask you to let that sink into your thinking just for a moment? Paul is giving us a pattern here, I think, that is not just what he does, but I think should apply to all of us, to this church and to you as individuals. I make myself, now, he's choosing to do this, right? A slave to everyone so that I may win them. In other words, I want to get inside their hearts and their heads. I want to build a bridge to Jesus Christ for them. I want to do things for them. I want to do everything I can so that they might know Jesus Christ. It's about them. It's not about me. It's about him and them. My job is to build that bridge to Christ. And I need to be very aware of where they are, what they're thinking, what their needs are, what their questions are, because their provision and their answer is found in Jesus Christ, period. How can I communicate that to them? When I go to Russia, the former Soviet Union, which I get to do a lot, when I go, I will quote from and use the Russian novelists and Russian writers, because that's where they are. And most of the people I talk to in the groups and lecture are atheists. But they all know Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Turgenev. They, they do. And there's a lot of gospel in Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. In fact, a military guy told me once when he said there was this great revival among the military in coming to Christ in the, in the mid-80s. I said, how could that happen? You guys don't have Bibles. He said, yeah, but we have Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. And if you've ever read Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Anna Korinan is just one long gospel track. Being aware of where they are and who they are. Building that bridge to them is so important. That's why understanding the culture around us is so crucial. And frankly, folks, what worked in the 50s may not work now. And we need to be aware of that. But what does? Well, service and loving and caring really always does. Let me give you an example. I was uh, doing a, a series on... Uh, popular music. And I spent some time on nihilism and popular music. And I used Marilyn Manson as an example. I went through that. And a guy came up to me afterwards. He had dyed his hair black, was wearing black clothes, had his fingernails black. and said, I'm a Manson fan. I said, no kidding. And he said, yeah. <laughs> and he said, I- I- I've never heard anybody talk about Manson like this. You really get him. You understand where he's coming from. I said, yeah. I said, uh, what do you think about the Christian side? I said, I hate Christ. I hate Christians. I hate the Bible. I want nothing to do with them. Well, we sat down at that time and started talking about Marilyn Manson's worldview and how it lines up with the biblical perspective and uh, trying to get inside how those things overlap at times and conflict as well. Two years we did that. Marilyn Manson was his door to Jesus Christ. You'll see the Apostle Paul doing something very similar here in just a second. But notice, Paul is saying... I make myself a slave to her. That means, let me, let me apply it to you. That means the people around you, be your family and friends, the people you work with, the person across uh, the counter when you're checking out at the store. The Lord is saying, enslave yourself to them for a moment. What can you do or say that might, in one way or another, commend the gospel to them? And stop thinking about what they think of you. You think about them. And in a long period of time, you know, we, we have a hard time sometimes even caring about people, caring enough about what they say. Sometimes with young people, we don't listen. I'll tell you, I just love listening to young people. Tell me what you're thinking, tell me who your favorite groups are, who your favorite movies are, and all these things. And it's amazing, you get this flood of information because everybody wants to talk about that, and you learn a lot about them from that. Learn a lot. I make myself a slave to And notice the examples he gives. To the Jews I became as the Jews that I might win the Jews. To those under the law as under the law, to those without the law without the law. And then he closes up this section with this, these great words To the weak I became weak, to win the weak I've become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. For too long, we in the church have said, okay, you want to be a Christian? You need to enslave yourself to us, right? You need to dress like us, vote like us, smell like us, be one of us if you're struggling a little bit then maybe you should go down the street God has called us to look at the people around us and weep to get inside their hearts and their heads for the glory of God we don't need to be afraid because we know the truth I challenge our students you need to know what you believe but you need to know what everybody else believes as well strengths and weaknesses there Here's a sidebar in 2 Peter. Lot, a righteous man, who was, what? What's the word there? He was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Now Lot was no paragon of virtue, was he? Yet in this context, when God is talking about how he Will always rescue the godly, always punish the ungodly. He mentions Lot and how his heart was broken by the culture around him, the sinfulness of the culture. What torments your soul? What breaks your heart? A lot of times we look down our noses as a Christians and say, Look at these people. And we should be weeping, we should be on our knees. When we hear and see of sinful behavior, it should drive us to pray. To break our hearts because they don't know the gift of God. Let me give you a a final example here as we close. To me, the prime example of the Apostle Paul actually doing what he said he does in 1 Corinthians 9 is here in Acts 17. He's left Silas and Timothy up in Berea. He comes down to Athens. Athens, the center, the center still of the empire, the Roman empire, even if the Romans had conquered them. Everything politically and religiously and philosophically came through Athens. And the passage here says, beginning in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them, Silas and Timothy, in Athens, he was what? Yeah, greatly distressed. There's that word again. What distressed him? The city was full of idols, literally swamped, the word says. Now, if you've been to Athens, I hope you get to go sometimes. The Agora, the marketplace, is huge. Take this room here, multiply it by 50. That's the marketplace, okay? That's what was swamped with idols, Thousands of them and thousands of people. Paul walks in there. As a believer, he hasn't been there. Maybe before when he wasn't, when he was a Pharisee. But now as a believer, he sees it with different eyes. Idols from all over the known world. people worshiping. And these idols were not just some Buddha. Type of a nice little pedestal. Many of them were vile and violent, some immoral. Many of them, folks, were just downright pornographic. And they were worshiping. And Paul walks into that and it breaks his heart because they did not know the gift of God. He began to engage them. First he went to the synagogue where he always went first. Then out in the marketplace to anybody that would listen to him. And then he caused such a stir that the Epicureans and the Stoics, particularly who dominated the philosophical school at that time, said, hey, we need to hear you. So they brought him to the Areopagus, which was the Mars Hill. They probably were down in the Agro because there were so many people, probably several hundred, that listened to Paul. And notice the message that he gave here. He said, men of Athens, I see that in every way, you are going to hell, every one of you stinking people. I've seen what you worship. No, that's not what he said, was it? No, he said, said, men of Athens, I see that in every way, You're very religious. Good grief, are you guys religious? In fact, as Calvin tells us, everybody's religious. We worship. Everybody worships something. What are you worshiping, though, is the key. But notice, he says, I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. See what he's doing? He's trying to find a connection with this group. Four chapters before, he opened up the word of God. He can't do that here. These people come from all over the world. There are just a few Jews, just a handful of them. How can he connect with them? And so he found the altar to the unknown God, and that became his segue to the truth. But can you imagine looking at all of that, his heart being broken even more by what he saw? And that motivated him to share this message. And I wish we had time to go through the message. It's a tremendous example and actually exposition of the, the biblical worldview. Where our time is gone. Let me summarize here. Let me summarize here. First, what was Paul's motivation? He was greatly distressed. My prayer for you and for this church is that God break your heart. For the world around you. Any ministry that is founded on a broken heart will always be effective. What breaks your heart? If nothing in this world breaks your heart, then ask God to break your heart. And his methods. First, he sought to understand the culture. Again, that's why I do what I do. And for many of you saying, I don't know where to start, I don't know what to do, it doesn't take long. I like to know what the popular movies are, the popular songs are, and I can get all that information probably about five to seven minutes just each day. And that's helpful because there's a lot of things to read, and the more you have a desire to want to know these things, the easier it is to want to learn these things as well. Paul started where they were. That's why it's so important sometimes working with young people. We tend to want to make them something that they're not. But in the same way, you want to start with people that you work with, people that you see. You need to know where they are. Start where they are. What do they believe? He was positive about the truth he found. You guys are really religious. And I I think of working with uh, this fellow, the Love Marilyn Manson. I started where he was. It's amazing how God took that. And he knew and quoted their sources. Interestingly, I mentioned quoting from uh, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. um, I've even used popular songs with a lot of kids. And um, because here, in the Apostle Paul in his message in Acts 17, he quoted from, not from the Bible, not from the Bible, he quoted from Epimenides and Eratus, an Epicurean and a Stoic philosopher-poet, both of them. Not once did he refer to the Bible. But... He knew their sources. And sometimes they say things right. Sometimes they say things wrong. And then he communicated the gospel. You never water down the gospel. Never water down the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. Jesus Christ came, died for our sins. He is the risen Lord. We will see him. And he will judge the world. So here's a closing challenge then. Check your heart where it all starts, isn't it? And then you need to check your mind as well. Sometimes we as Christians are very sloppy and very lazy when it comes to bringing every thought captive to Christ and loving God with our minds. And I think two, of our, two perspectives are very important here. It's the attitude of our heart and the altitude of our mind. I like thinking big picture that's why I started here with, you know, the big picture is we know who wins in the end. It's going to be great. And therefore we serve. We live with hope, no matter how bad it gets. No matter how bad it gets. In fact, um, I remember 1980, Lake Placid. Do you remember that? When we were... Of course, the teenagers are going, oh yeah, no, you don't remember that. Uh, but maybe you saw the movie. Uh, when... Our hockey team, back then we couldn't have professionals. They weren't supposed to beat the Russians, you know. And uh, we were supposed to get clobbered by the Russians. And uh, we actually won the game four to three. And I didn't get to see the game. And I was, I was in seminary at the time and was gone and uh, missed it. But you know what they did. The next day, they replayed the whole game. It was, it was great. And I remember watching the game because of, of just the incredible, incredible a hoopla that was surrounding that. Of course that was not the gold medal. We had to go and defeat Finland one more game to win the gold medal, but just beating the Russians was enough, you know. And watching that game was just so incredible because it looked like we were going to get clobbered for a good part of the game. And I didn't worry at all. Not a bit. Because I knew who was going to win. Some of you are going through a really tough time. Some of you are very discouraged what's going on in our country. What's going on in the world. Some of you are concerned like we don't know what the future holds. Yes, we do. And you don't have to be a futurist to know what the future holds. So my challenge for all of us in these days is to be men and women who have hearts and minds for God. Unafraid to engage the culture as the Apostle Paul told us and showed us Because, let's face it, 1st century Athens is much like 21st century America. Unapologetically, we move ahead for the glory of God. And I am so grateful that this church loves to do that. And let me encourage you as individuals to do that as well. We do it for His glory. That we might engage the culture with both the heart and the mind of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, Father, we thank you. For the challenges that you have given to us. In a world that is so unsavory and dark, you've called us to be salt, you've called us to be light. And maybe that's just the person sitting next to us on the plane or the person sitting next to us in the office or the person that we talk to when we're out shopping. Or maybe it's our brother or our mother, friend at school. Can you move us, Father, to enslave ourselves to them that we might win them? Let us be acutely aware of your spirit working and let us commend the gospel by how we live out our faith in a way that shows hope. We thank you, Father. Bless this church and these people for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.